So I take it you're all here because we have a, a love of wanting to see the gospel go out and grow. Yeah, so it's, um, it's great to be together. What my intention today is, uh, there's a million things I could talk about. 16 years ago we started the church on the Central Coast um, and I've been involved in a number of plants since then. So we've just, from out of our church, we've just started another one um, gee, six months ago. Um, and I've been involved with Geneva and seeing lots of other plants. So I've seen all that early stage of church life. And uh, we are at quite a different stage now. And if you do want to talk about that, I'm very happy to. But uh, we, we, are at a, we, we had the early on stages as well. We went through all of that process. And, and if, what I've tried to do is distill down some principles that have operated in me, for better or worse, that in my estimation have been significant in the work on the Central Coast and in other contexts I've seen. Um, and they aren't exhaustive. Uh, and I hope as we talk together we might bounce around a few more. But I, I, I guess, I mean, I could think of another 20 straight away. Uh, and I've tried to go principles and not just here are the things to do. I've tried to get behind the things we do to the principles that have operated, that have led to those actions, because as I dare say you'd appreciate too, that's what is transferable. Um, now in all of that, uh, please note that you know, we're very conscious of the sovereignty of God. I'll come back to that in a second. It's pretty important for us that all that's happened is happened under God. We can plan and scheme, and if God's not in it, it's it's worthless. It's it's a waste of time. You'll end up with just a crowd. You know, all I'll be talking a little bit about that, but I want I want you to know up front that that's a big concern. The other thing I want to draw your attention to is a a little bit of a um, caution, uh, which is a little bit of pessimism. Do you does anyone know it's sailing? No, okay. One person. Good. Uh, when, when you sail, you know you've got to tack and all that kind of deal. You can't sail straight into the wind. It, with sailing, so I, I kind of grew up doing all that kind of stuff, you got, the first thing with sailing is you've got to work out where you are. Actually, Phil Wheeler and I sailed a lot together. Where are you, Phil? Are you there somewhere? Oh, I thought I just saw him walking. You've got to work out, the first thing you've got to work out is where you're going to, right? So where am I going to take this boat? The second thing is you've got to work out where the wind is, where the waves are, um, and then you sort out, well, if I'm going to get to B, I've got to work out how to kind of tack there. You see, so you've got a first order decision, which is A to B. Second order, well, given all the circumstances around me, I won't be able to just go straight there. I'm going to have to come here, got the tacking decision. But there's a third order decision you've got to make which is every moment as you're getting to this point, you've got to keep adjusting for the shifts in the wind, the shifts in the waves, and so on, to actually get to that point. You got it? Now, the reason I draw your attention to that is, I think um, in our roles, we fail, we can fail in three ways. First, we don't know where we are and where we're going. Second... Having worked out where we're going and we might have got that sorted, we don't analyse properly the prevailing circumstances and work out how to tack. But thirdly, we don't take sufficient account of the many small decisions that need to be made on the way there to get there. And I, I think conferences can help you think into A to B tacking 
But what I notice in my own life, and I've noticed it in others, that I can go away from a conference with A to B, the tacking points, and try to do it, get back to church and find after six months I'm over here. You know, and I kind of go, it didn't work. And I think it's because we haven't taken enough account of, to actually get there, you've got to make a hundred small decisions on the way. Does that make some sense? Um, now, how do you get that? I think that's... Um, uh, that's our MTS programs. That's our catechist, curacies, whatever you've got in your denominations and so on. And... It's hard to give all of that in this context. I'm just alerting you to a problem. Okay? Um, but let me go through the principles. Here, I, got, I think I've got about 15. Um, they get quicker as they go through. So, uh, and there'll be a bunch more as we talk together. Here's the first one. The big driver is God's glory. Um, 1 Corinthians 10, we'll look at it in a moment together. But uh, the big thing ends, of course, with the glory of God in the midst of it all. Which means how we do what we do matters. How we do what we do matters. Um, the method isn't just pragmatic. The method matters as well as the outcomes. We can never be the end justifies the means kind of guys. Just want to under now some of these things will be stuff we could assume, but I'm not going to. <laughs> so we'll move through these. Um, who we are and what we do matters. And that, of course, is Paul. Paul's reaction to the Judaizers in Galatians. His, his anger, his white-hot reaction is not just because the Judaizers' gospel won't work, but it detracts from the glory of God who's the one who saves. So that's God's glory. Second principle. If there is any growth, it is his work, providentially and spiritually. If there is any growth, it is his work, He's the one who says, I will build my church. We can sow and water, but he's the one who gives the growth. Which therefore means, of course, prayer is critical as a principle of church growth. We want to call on God to do things and actually work in our plans and fulfill every dimension of it. We want to be prayerful. Um, And we want to be enabled constantly in the midst of church life to be content and comforted and secure and humble, <laughs> which is God's the one who does the work. All right. Um, now that that has shaped me. Those two big things have shaped me as a planter. When we came to the Central Coast, the burden of my message was to radicalise people to see that life was not about them; it was about God. That was the big burden to radicalise people. Um, to break out of the essence of sin, which is to see life for me, even using God, but using Him for me. <laughs> Just there is the guts of what we have worked hard to do for so many years. Um, all right? Third principle. Now, you could start this with a but, but it's probably better to say art, uh, end. So, you, you, God's glory, it's His work, but or end. The God who was about his glory, who builds his church, is about growth. He is about growth. He is about bringing the world to know who he is, what life is about. He's about bringing more people to see the truth, to be saved from sin, corruption, rebellion. He's about growing 
the church. Now you could go Matthew 28, make disciples of all nations. Matthew 13, the parables of um, the, the seed and the plant, the, you know, that God is concerned to see things grow. Ephesians chapter 1, the picture in Revelation about countless, th- you know, God is about growth. Um, and the big principle here for mine is God is about growth. He's serious about it. He paid a price to make it happen through his son. That's desperately important. Right? Now, I've always had that. Uh, I think I'm an evangelist. Everyone's always reluctant to... But I, I love evangelism and I find myself always wanting to do it. I go to a shopping mall and I see people and I just see them as lost. That's how I... I've talked to friends who just don't do that. They just, and I think it's... God has wired me like that. Um, which actually, you should know, that makes me very dangerous. You know that theologically. Because it's always the evangelists who uh, become the heretics, you know, the, the ones who want to change the gospel to make it fit the winning of the. So be careful with me. But that's me. I'm the evangelist, and I expect people to be saved. God's about growth. Um, I'm therefore about growth, salvation of people, and I expect people to be saved um, and see it happen. His gospel's powerful. It's His work. So when we planted EV. The headline for us was saving the world. We wanted to see thousands one for Christ. Now I have since learned that there's a language that's used in different contexts that captures what we were about and it's called focusing on outputs. Focusing on outputs. You see it in the business world. Um, there is that, if you've not read it, it's a good book to chase through. Jim Collins, Good to Great. Um, uh, he's got a supplement for not-for-profits that goes along with the book, and it's, it's helpful to read. Um, but one of the big things that happens in businesses when they move from you know, just going healthily and well to really firing is they shift from a focus on inputs to outputs. And we've had that from the beginning. Now, what you, an input is what you put into the ministries. It's prayer, it's preaching, it's being faithful in the work, it's... Um, uh, visiting, evangelising, they're all inputs. Outputs are numbers of people converted. Lives changed. Now, I want to contend that one of the big principles that we need to embrace is to focus on inputs and outputs. Okay, um, And it's what we had, it was part of the fabric of who we were, um, and I, in one sense, I do want to offer something of an of apologetic for this, uh, because you've got the sovereignty of God. He's the one who brings about growth. How can I therefore focus on conversion as an output? Because I just, I water, I, 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 I so he gives the growth, doesn't he? How can we focus on that? Um, and here's, the, have a look at the Bible with me. 1 Corinthians 9. Let's have a quick look. Now, if anyone's wondering about the air conditioning, apparently it doesn't do anything but what it's doing now. Is that right? It stays hot. 1 Corinthians 9, uh, verse 16. When I preach the gospel, I cannot boast, for I'm compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. There's a driven man. 
Yeah. Have a look down in verse 19. Though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. There's a man focused on winning as many as possible. Not just faithfulness in evangelism. He's actually committed to winning as many as possible. Um, you, You come down to 22. To the weak I became weak, to win the weak I become all things to all men so that by all possible means I might save some. His focus is on outputs. He wants to see people saved. And not just wants to be faithful in preaching. Now notice the word just because he absolutely wants to be that. Um, But he is focused on a concern to see a response. Um, You get in chapter 10... Verse 33, even as I try to please everyone in every way, for I'm not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. I think we have a problem ministering in Australia because the soil is so dry, it's like ploughing concrete, the response is so often meagre, that focusing on the output side of the equation becomes very depressing. (laughs) And so I think we have tended for our own mental health sake to not give as much account for that anymore and focused on the input side of things. Now, I want to make sure that we don't swing one way too far. There's the both-end thing. Um... But the fruit of the work matters. Um, We've got to always be controlled that our methods matter. But the fruit matters. These guys counted. Whenever they went gospeling, they came back and said 3,000 were saved. You know, they they counted the numbers. um, Because they were souls, one. Now, there wasn't um, despair when the results weren't great. Paul was able to say, well, there are spiritual forces at work as well. So if our gospel is veiled, uh, there's a supernatural power at work. So he wasn't, he wasn't driven to despair when the results weren't great. He had this um, uh, deeper appreciation of the whole character of what God is about in the world and his path. But uh, he preached for response. He preached for conversion. He preached for change. He wanted to see spiritual growth in virtues, in love. He wanted to see change. And he wanted to see conversion. So that for us has meant we're committed to two priorities. And I think, again, we find this a little bit hard, but we're committed to two priorities, deep and wide. Deep and wide. We want to see people grow deeply in the faith and we want to have an impact broadly and widely. We're committed to two things. Now, you could say we're committed to one thing. It's called disciple-making. Making of and deepening in. But I, I prefer to talk the two aspects of disciple-making, both and. Okay. Um, and I want to contend it is an important principle for growth that we focus on outputs and actual change numerically and spiritually. Um, all right? Now... 
Why? Well, because it's part of caring about the honour of God. It's part of loving people. I actually want to see them saved. I haven't finished my task of just being faithful. I want to persuade them because they're going to hell. Um, And I want to focus on outputs for another reason. Because it helps me make tough decisions. Um, It focuses my mind. It focuses my choices and my actions to focus on outputs. Um, Will this help or hinder us actually making a difference? You know that line, um, as long as one person's converted, it was worth all the effort? Have you ever heard? You've got to shoot that down. Uh, you've got to, we'll come to other principles and all, which fill it. We can't just be glad that the month of work produced one convert. Um, it helps you choose between good and best being focused. Let me give you an illustration. It's, the, it's Jim Collins, actually. He talks about the... Um, NYPD in the mid '90s. Has anyone heard this story about the um, they um, the New York, New York Police Department? They um, they had a new uh, police commissioner come in. I think it was, and he he shifted their focus from inputs to outputs. Previously, they'd been focused on arrests made, reports written, closing of cases, kind of all the things that they put into the system. And he brought to them a commitment to actually reduce crime. And that's, you kind of go, yeah, you like, kind of, but that was new. And he actually, he imposed a double digit reduction in the crime rate as the thing they were pursuing, not just the number of arrests, not just the, he wanted to see all of that achieve an outcome. And they then, here's the thing, they then would get divisional commanders in front of committees with some regularity to justify why they hadn't yet reduced the crime rate in their area. Um, not just how many arrests, not just... Um, and Collins reports that only 75, 75% of commanders didn't survive that whole process um, because they simply couldn't move from inputs to making a difference. Um, all right. Now, I want to suggest to you that that, that is... We need to embrace the both end, inputs and outputs. Our output is not just being faithful, but seeing people saved. Now, that's hard. But if if you don't do it, we become sloppy and we become content with satisfactory underperformance. I think it's a Tim Sims line. I don't know where I picked it up from. but When you begin to focus on outputs, you see that you have become content with satisfactory underperformance. We're doing okay, we're just not seeing anyone convert. Or we've seen one, or... Now, you'll get pushback theologically, and you've got to recognise I'm an evangelist, and all of that's put into the mix. But what I do find is, in the midst of needing to take care theologically to express all of this, some of the pushback comes from people who are satisfied with underperformance and they don't want to be held to account which therefore means we've got to be gracious with each other but it takes hard headedness as well, we've got to have some hard headedness about this Um, uh, do you know um, over the years we've had to let go of three staff, I think Um, 
and we had to let go of three staff because they weren't performing. Now that's a hard process to go through, but what you need to embrace is the yes-no principle. This is not one of mine, but here's another one. You know the yes-no principle. If you say yes to one thing, you're saying no to another. If you say yes to keeping on board an underperforming leader or staff member, you are saying no to the maturing growth and salvation of many people. You can't have it both ways. Um, all right. Now it takes graciousness. We've got to take. There's a lot of care in this, but we do need to grow in a, a bit more hard-headedness with our soft-heartedness. Okay. Um, uh, all right. Um, when you choose people for leadership. You're not just looking for godly people. Now notice the word just. You're looking for people who are godly, faithful, captured by Christ, who can make a difference. Got it? Got it? We have um, uh, 80, 90 growth groups. So we've got about 160 growth group leaders across EV. And um, it's interesting for mine that there are some growth groups that you know, if I put these two people into that growth group, in six months' time they'll be gone. Whereas there are other growth groups, if I put two people in them, I know they'll turn into four. Um, You've got to be aware of that. Now, what do you do about it? I'm just giving the principle, right? What you do with it, we we'll, may discuss together, but... There's a big principle. Five. God is sovereign. He'll build his church, but he does use means to produce the outputs. God's sovereign. He'll build his church, but he's committed to using means to achieve achieve that outcome. And in essence, or at core, the means he uses to bring about the building of his church is the gospel word brought to bear on people's lives so that it communicates. Now, the heart of what we do is just work that principle everywhere. The gospel word brought to bear on people's lives so that it communicates. That's all we're doing, in essence. And I've just worked out ways to try and leverage that and multiply it and bring more people in contact with the gospel word so that they get it. Which means you've got to work at your gospel proclamation. Is it clear? You know, you've got to work at connecting people with the gospel to others. There is the kind of heart of our, in one-to-ones, in small groups, in big platforms, in all kinds of contexts, the gospel brought to bear on people's lives so that it communicates. Okay? Um, Now, uh, yeah, yeah, it's yeah, it's no good me standing up and reading the Greek New Testament on a Sunday morning. And saying and going home saying I've been faithful, I've preached the gospel. So is that is that the same as just the gospel being you know, the the reason I want to add it in is to is to be careful that I, I need to bring people in contact with the gospel, but I need to bring people in contact with the gospel in the way that they get it. Did you see so um, I'm always working hard. The communication process isn't just delivery, it's hearing. And there's a spiritual dimension. Yeah, the hearts are hardened. And you see how this does all get 
theologically complex, but nonetheless it is my responsibility to be clear and to speak a gospel word so that people are hearing what I'm saying. Because it's my contention, if I can get them to actually see what the gospel is saying, they'll be blown away by it. Now God's sovereign, and you get all that. Um, now that all throws you back on this big thing. Um, our inputs do make a difference to the outputs. If you're a Christian pastor who's lazy, who does Facebook all day, about nose hair or whatever it is, and uh, drinks coffee all day, who's reading commentaries all day, who's on his computer writing, if that's the kind of minister you are, you don't expect there'll be much growth. Because God uses means. And he happens to use us as his fellow workers. Um, and you kind of go, oh, isn't God sovereign? Yeah. But Romans 10, how will they hear unless someone's sent? We need to be sending people to bring the gospel to bear on others' lives, otherwise it just doesn't work. Now, some churches are better at that process of sending people with the gospel to bear on others' lives in a way that communicates than others. And they're seeing more fruit. It's not hard to do the maths. Um, now, it doesn't mean suddenly we've turned into being man-centred and it's all about us, but God uses means. It is so, it's compatibility, the theology of compatibilism. Um, and you can add to that that um, uh, the, the, you might content yourself that you are faithful, that you're responding to needs, that you're being godly and loving, but if you're not working smart with wisdom, you will see less fruit as well. That's 1 Timothy 2, 2 Timothy 2, the hard-working farmer. You know, you, all of that wisdom is brought to bear in these issues. Um, all right? Now, well, of course, we'll come back to all of this. To get outputs in EV, we were ferocious about our pursuit of inputs. And that's the word. We were ferocious about it and still are ferocious about bringing the gospel word to bear on people's lives in a way that communicated. We, that's, we have, one of our big values is every single person who comes into EV, I want to see them personally mentored with someone with the gospel word into their life every step of the way. Um, we've sought to immerse the whole church in every dimension in word ministries. Um, We've been pretty ferocious about that. Um, all right. You add this together with a couple of other principles. Alignment and groupology. And groupology is a new word. I coined it just for today. Um, alignment and groupology. Uh, I worked hard at this alignment. When you don't have any resources, it was just me. If you've planted a church, you'll know the same experience. It's just you. You might have an MTS worker. We had one, but it was me, 10 people. So you don't have much resource. Um, and you've got to make every little bit of resource you have work for you in a direction that will align and build momentum. I'll come back to that in a second. Um, uh, I made sure we only did the stuff that would move us forward and I communicated everywhere about what we were about. I banged away out in small groups, big groups, one-to-one -one, um, to get everyone aligned. I kept... We aren't, a, we aren't a resort for disgruntled churchgoers. We aren't a retirement village for people who want to rest. 
we, we aren't a solution to frustrated evangelicals who want a Bible teaching church. That's not what we are. Right, to try and keep getting us aligned. Um, so alignment is powerful. Um, groupology. Let me take you through groupology, number seven. Uh, individual life is not the same as group life. Individual life is not the same as group life. Now, some call this sociology, but groupology is more catchy for mine. Um, individual life is not the same as, as group life. Groups have a life that's built up by individuals, but it's more than the individuals. The group life actually ends up shaping the life of the individuals. I'll give you an example. We, um, I, I worked at, at um, New South Wales Uni with Cole and those guys for some years, and um, you would disciple a young guy there, and you would see significant change in his life. You do the same work in another church context, and you wouldn't see as much fruit from it. Now, why is that? Same work. I want to suggest it's because of groupology. There's a there's an umbrella. There's a culture and context that a group creates, which means that the same activities within that group context will have far more impact and bear much more fruit because of the life of the group enhancing or hindering the nature of your work. It's groupology. Um, And that then means when you're aware of groupology, you can create a momentum that a group has which will do your work for you. And when we started the church, uh, I don't know what you think about church planning on the central coast, I do get some who say, ah, oh, it's golden soil, very easy up there. Um, we, um, when we started, it was easier than some church contexts, and it was harder. It was easier because people joined the church to join me. So I had a power as a leader that it's not as easy to get as readily. Okay, So that did make it a little easier. And I, today, still to this day, I have a power that most leaders don't have in our church context. Um, but it was harder because everyone resented the power I had. Yeah. Everyone who, within the first 20 people who came to us, they resented that I was the one who led this place. And so we had all kinds of battles. They didn't agree with me on the gospel. One of our first core group meetings was about whether we're saved by grace alone or works. I was the only one who thought we're saved by grace alone. Um, that's the core group I had to work with, right? And um, it was a very, it was a very hard group. There was no security in it. There was no stability in it. If you offended someone, they were gone. That was it. And ten percent of your church was gone. Uh, it's, it's pretty stressful stuff. And it was a beach culture. So I was sharing with some of the guys that. People move to the Central Coast for a lifestyle choice. Now, I'm trying to bring a gospel word that challenges lifestyle choices. How many of them want me to tell them that when they've just moved their whole house up here? Do you see? So it's, it was quite confronting, the ministries we were doing. Um, now, I, I knew that if we wanted to get a church on mission, we had to change the culture of the group, not just individuals. You could do that by working over every individual in the group, but I didn't have enough time. So I considered more carefully the nature of groups, what shapes a group, 
you don't need every person to shape a group life. You just need the gatekeepers, you need the opinion makers, you need the powerful people. And in a small church, we'll come to this second session, in a small church I hope you realise that leadership and authority within a small church is not by designation, it's by personality. Um, You might be designated the minister, but the powerful people will be the ones whose personality captures others and they listen to them. Now, I, I, was, I was the guy forming the church plant, but we had two, three people within that group of 30 that I would say something and everyone would look to them to see what they thought. So who is a real leader here? <laughs> you know, um, now, just if I'm going to change a group, I could work on every single person or I could try to work on key people, you see. Um, so I battered the key people. Graciously and lovingly, but I was tenacious. I persuaded, cajoled, worked with. I shaped the leadership and governance structures to break entrenched powers. To, doing all that kind of work so that you you get the group culture shifting and changing. Um, we had a vision. We worked hard to get a clear vision, one that had teeth. If you're going to have a vision statement, I think it's helpful to have a vision, especially as you get bigger, you need it particularly. A vision statement needs to be one that actually helps you make decisions and not just sound nice. Do you know what I mean? Um, if your vision statement's not one that you can say, here's some decisions, will this help us make the decision? You probably need to rethink your statements. If it's just motherhood, it won't work for you. Um, so there's alignment and groupology. Um, I, I, I immersed the place in the Word, but I did it with purpose. I didn't just teach the Bible, I teach the Bible to actually bring about change. I batted away on key issues. Uh, in the early years, my wife and I, we ran everything. We fought every fight. We let people leave because we were determined to have a place that would be built around making an impact. And it was an edgy church. It was far from comfortable. One of the values was that you won't be comfortable. Um, and we found stories to try and capture that. We use the lifeboat illustration all the time. Have you heard? Some of you may have heard me use this, but the, um, you know, we for years I've been saying to every new person who comes into our church, you want to know that we're a lifeboat. Um, we see ourselves as a church in an ocean of three hundred drowning people, three hundred thousand drowning people on the Central Coast. And we're the lifeboat. The gospel's the means of saving, draining people into the lifeboat. Um, that's what we are. And then I'd point out the problem for us easily, though, is that that lifeboat becomes very comfortable. And you get to the point where you've got enough people in the lifeboat that you think to yourself, I, I, do we have to have more come here? And I would always do this. I'd say to people, um, what if everyone had their seat and everyone was full and you were trying to drag another person in and someone in the boat said, we've already got enough in the boat, do we have to have someone else? What would you all say to that person in a lifeboat? And invariably someone says, what do you think those are? Well, it was an easy way to make room, why don't you get out? Almost every time. And, uh, and everyone goes, oh, I get it. It's not about us. Uh, it's about building a community for the sake of reaching the lost, It's going to be uncomfortable. We're going to build this lifeboat bigger and bigger and bigger so that you may not know everybody. 
we're going to start new lifeboats. That's what we're about. So we, we just keep telling that story. Um, all right. And all of that was for the purpose of aligning and getting a culture running through the church. We reworked the structures according to some insights from groupology. We'll come to that second session about how you realign the work as you grow. Um, and out of this, another principle sneaks up. This is number eight in my estimation. Uh, groups grow where leadership is prepared to do whatever it takes to grow. Now, our prayer was and is that God would make us whatever he needed us to be to make this thing to move forward. Um, and it's interesting, again, uh, if I just use the Jim Collins thing again, he identified that in groups, in businesses that grew, the leaders were rarely big personalities. They were rarely big personalities. Uh, they were generally leaders who put the business over their own personal life. That was genuinely the nature of the leadership. They weren't big personalities. They were genuinely people, generally people who put the business over their own personal life. Now that's Christianity, isn't it? That, if we can't be that kind of leader, we're not listening to the gospel particularly. Um, and it's a comfort. You don't have to be a big personality. Um, now, uh, I'll give you just some examples of actually. Uh, we need churches where the leader isn't a hobby leader. Don't employ people for whom Christian ministry is a hobby, or their wife sees it as a hobby. Um, that's been one of the keys to staffing in our context. Be conscious of the people you make heroes of for the sake of the culture of your community. There's lots of ways to feed into the culture. One of them is presenting people that we esteem in this place, who are the ones who would die for the cause, for whom it matters more than their own... You know, creating that culture. Um, now, as this went on, this becomes more and more important in, in your staffing. We, um, I'll give a quick little story just to tell you the kind of guys that, that are around. We, um, I'll come back to this a little bit later. About five years ago, we worked out that if we were going to get to the next stage of growth, we needed to deal with some major blockages in church. And I'd pretty much worked out what the blockages were, but to deal with the blockages meant uh, investing staff resource into that area. We couldn't afford more staff. The only way I could see to do it was to shift staff who were doing other things into that work. But to shift a staff member to that work would mean a rejigging here and and it would mean three of our staff who were preaching would no longer preach. Now I thought, they're not going to buy that. So over three months, we sat down as a senior staff and thought about what God might do amongst us, what we needed to do to see people saved, to make it an output difference. And over three months, we discussed that, we worked it through, we saw what could be, and then we put the discussion, how committed are you to this happening? And um, praise God for the bunch of guys I got. They all to a man said, we'll do whatever it takes. And I said, now, if it means that I never preach again, I'm in it. Are you in it? 
means you never preach again because the only way we can move it forward is for you not to, you, you know, some of us, me, whoever. And they all went, we need time. So we had a couple of weeks and thought and they came back and said, yep, we're up for it. So that then freed up the whole group, six of us, to say each of us is prepared to do whatever it takes to be different to what we've been trained to do or whatever. And when you've got a group of blacks like that, that's, that's world-beating, isn't it? That's, and that's shaped so much. And it's infected the tone of church. Um, it's meant we could do things with the limited resources that you can't in other contexts. Okay. Number 10. No, no, yeah, no, number 9. Number nine sorry. Change is a process. Change is a process. Moving someone from outside of the things of Christ to being connected with the gospel, to understanding the gospel, to responding to the gospel, to being established in church, to being matured as a Christian, that's a process. Okay? Principle 10. I'm going to work these together in a second. The changes we're after in that process are so large they won't happen without focused long-term effort. Change is a process and the changes we're after are so big they won't happen without focused long-term energy. And I'll give you principle 11 and then I'll come back to those three together. Reality trumps idealism. Reality trumps idealism. Okay, you've got the three? Change is a process. Each step of that process is massive. And reality trumps idealism. Let me explain what I mean. Um, if you're going to get a church to be on mission, it won't happen with a three-week preaching series. Um, if you're going to get a group engaging with non-Christians, if you're going to get people converted, it won't happen with a sermon one Sunday. What we've discovered is that because we're dealing with people so far back, the process is a many-year process. And conversion happens over a period of weeks in exploring the gospel as it's brought to bear in communication in a way that's being heard. And then a 12-month follow-up process that comes out of it before they're then incorporated into small groups. Change is a process, and the changes required are so massive that they won't happen without concerted long-term effort. And reality always trumps idealism. What do I mean by that? I mean... Um, you might wish as you look at church as the guy running a group of 50, 60 people that you can get evangelism fired up you can get the maturing processes fired up you can get incorporation fired up but you're just not you won't do it it would be lovely to think you could and Christians should be on about all of that stuff reality is you just won't and ministers aren't. <laughs> in churches across the city, to, 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 for a bloke to run a church of 50, 60, 80, 100 people, 
absorbs so much time in the management processes of just the church, in preaching once a week, leading services, responding to needs, sleeping, sleeping with his wife. Those things take up so much time. You just don't have the opportunity to invest the time needed to make those big structural changes happen in people's lives. You just don't have it. You keep wishing it was so, and it should be so. Reality always trumps ideally. So what do you do? Well, that's you guys to work it out. <laughs> we'll come back to it in a sec. Um, uh, I think I'm up to 12, and I've only got a couple more, and they go quickly now. Um, growth needs proactive pastoring. Growth needs proactive pastoring. Pastoring that just responds to needs or responds to people who are willing to be pastored won't grow your church. If you've not worked out how to proactively create under God a leader out of nothing, you won't grow the church. Um, and I think a lot of our pastoring is reactive in that we're all right at getting people who are happy to lead and help them lead, but once we've got those ten people, we're stuck. And growth won't happen without proactive pastoring. The ability to actually go to the next 20, 30 people and help those who wouldn't ever put their hand up to be pastored into a context where they would now think to do that and have the skills to do that under God. Proactive pastoring is necessary. Um, uh, Thirteen. It's the principle of the physicality of the human. The physicality of the human. We aren't disembodied spirits. Physical spaces make a difference. Physical spaces make a difference. Now I know ideally we'd wish it would do otherwise, but here's your reality versus idealism. You wish you could meet in any space, it didn't matter what it was like, and everyone would just come because they love Jesus. Well, you keep living with that idealism, and I'll see you in ten years' time with the half a dozen people you've got. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? You kind of you've got to face some realities that we're not disembodied spirits. Spaces impact us, um, and they'll help or hinder your work. Um, they're not the gospel. They're not the key. There's a reality that you've got to get over. All right. Um, and I think it's interesting. <laughs> I give you a quick example. Most of our people don't get this either. Um, uh, so we, we went to build a building. We put up a structure and so on. And um, how nice do you make it? Now you guys probably, I don't know whether you're in a situation where you even have to ask that question, but we had to ask the question, how nice do we make it? Now we had a couple of people, probably more than a couple, saying, just throw up a banner. People will love Jesus, they'll come along, the gospel's powerful. And we're able to talk back and say, let's go to your house. How come you just don't live in a bar? Well, it'd be horrible to live in a bar. Well, <laughs> why would you think that you couldn't cope, but you want a thousand people to cope? You in your own personal life recognise that physicality and nice facilitates family, it facilitates gathering. We're just trying to say the same thing. Uh, 14 conviction based 
ministries are longer lasting but not always most dynamic. Conviction based ministries are longer lasting but not always most dynamic. What I mean by that is um, there's a totality to the human that we need to bear in mind. I want to build conviction into our people so that whether I'm there or not, whether things are going well or not, whether there's momentum or not, they will love Jesus, serve Jesus, mission, evangelise, convictions will drive them, right? But what I've noticed is that lots of people with deep and solid convictions aren't always very dynamic. The ones who are most dynamic are the excited ones. The ones who are, who are just loving what's happening. And they love this place, they love this work, and they're the ones evangelising. They haven't actually got hugely deep convictions yet, but they're excited. So I want to get them and I want to deepen their convictions. But I want to recognise that that's actually something to work with in a way that the conviction person, I ought not, I ought not ignore that dynamic. Do you see what I'm saying? Um, so, that's meant that I've worked hard to care about the totality of our life together because the totality of our life as a community fuels the convictions so that they're glad convictions. They're, they're enthusiastic convictions. They're, I love, not just that we're on mission and we've got to do it, but I love being in this place with this community that's about mission together. I'm trying to get that richness. Last one. Control and growth operate on two ends of a continuum. Control and growth operate on two ends of a continuum. So you've got control at one end, you've got growth at another. Um, the less control you have over things, the more it will grow. The, less, the, the more control, the less it will grow. Um, which tells you what? You've got to work out what it tells you. But that's a fact. Does that mean we should let go of all controls because we'll get more growth? Not if you love the gospel. Because you don't want people just going off wherever they want to go. So you've got to control. But what I notice is that as churches go on, their control gets harder and harder and harder. So they don't let anything happen because they're so fearful they want control and so their growth diminishes. But I say to them to let things go a bit and they hear me say, do that. I'm going, no, 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 it's, not, it's a continuum. You, you've got to dial it in as you move along. In a church plant, a small context particularly, you've got to wrestle with that issue. But established churches need to wrestle with that issue. They're all growth and continuum. All right, I'm, I'm, there's a bunch of principles. What time is it? My watch is broken. Is that good timing? <laughs> so, was we time now for questions? Is that deal? Okay, go for it. I've dumped. I've, you guys have done very well.
Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, good. Um, the physicality of it all. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, uh, you, you, there's a couple of things I would say. You, um, we always go landscape, not. Uh, so we always set up here, never here in a in a room. Um, the the reason being is that our ministries are teaching ministries, but they're teaching... Evangelicals run preaching ministries that are about relationship with the Word. It's the Gospel in the hands of people brought to bear on people's lives. And so for us, the connection of a person to the pulpit, the ministry, in the, the event of a service we're talking about here, that matters. Now, in a, in a, in a ministry where the dynamic is actually driven by the crowd experience that connection doesn't matter as much. Which therefore means I'm always looking for ways to minimise that distance. More than that, I'm looking for ways, because in smaller churches, we'll come to this, well, unless we keep going down this path, but in smaller churches, the dynamic and growth of a smaller church is by relationship. It's not by pulpit leadership. And so you're looking for ways to create relationship with each other which means I want to see, I want to see each other. Which is why we set up in a circle in this context, not in rows. Um, so I'm, I'm conscious of all that, that humanity of us, our physicality and how we operate, the groupology. And I actually, that bears into the way we think about our hall setup. And one of the things I annoy these guys about always at Geneva is every time we set up some space, I'll come and reset it. <laughs> Because I, I feel spaces really intensely. Um, and it's a problem, but it's also... The other thing is, uh, because you're wanting to work on momentum, uh, you always set out less chairs. So you have a pile of chairs here and you bring them out later. Yeah, it's just a simple thing. It's very depressing. Again, idealism and realism. You, you know, Idealism is always trumped by reality. And the reality is that you're ministering to superficial people who are not yet mature. That's why you're running a ministry. You're running a ministry to mature people, so you're expecting that immature people will be coming. And because immature are like the way they are, they actually get put off by the sense that we're failing. Now, you'd wish it were otherwise. You'd wish they're more mature. Go and disciple them. <laughs> but until you do, your church will only grow with really mature people and you'll go very slowly. that make sense? Does fruitfulness have in faithfulness? 
Yeah, I do. I know. I, I think I know what you mean. It, it, um, I think you ought to spend the rest of your life conflicted about it. I don't, I don't think. I don't think the shape of the way we apply the gospel can reduce that conflict. Um, and I think the danger is in seeking to bring mental health to people who are struggling. We can. We, we can actually remove that conflict which ought to be there. So, uh, now, now, when I'm struggling and depressed, where I where I flee to is the sovereignty of God, the gospel, grace alone. It's not my works. It's not my significance bound up in this work. I flee to that. At the same time, though, as I come out of that depression, I go, help me get back on track with caring about how many people respond. It's got to be both ends. And I live with the conflict. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. But, but I think it's right. I, I want to found guys... I want to found guys into um, the grace, the gospel, and add the output onto it. So I think if I were to kind of put it in that... Con- that's how I'd structure it. But I do want to get guys to the output thing because we care about people not going to hell. How can you ever be satisfied that no one's responding? How can it not grieve you? Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. Now his mental health would have been better if he didn't care. Um, it's a similar tension. It's the output being so output focused, I know you weren't saying that stop loving people now. But I've been listening to Vicky, I just listened to the talk from Mark before the day, where he was saying you need to be so ruthless that you move people on. Where's the where do you find that drop fine barrier of saying, and you brought it up at the start, of loving people yeah. and saying, look, hey, this is not You've got to be schizo. <coughs> You've got to be schizo. You've got to, you've got to have... I've got to be... Um, I, I've got to love the people God has given me for where they're at and who they are by the grace of God in Christ and just love it that we're together and grace conquers. But I've got to want to see them grow too. And so you've got this, I'm frustrated. And sometimes it'll boil over in me hitting people. Um, So I do, I I had a conversation with one of the guys in our church, um, it's a beach culture, surfing world, um, He'd been in churches before us, but kind of drifted on the fringes. Very irregular. He off if the surf was good with his family, da da da. And and I'd been preaching about this stuff for quite some time, and just pleading with people to see the shape of the gospel and what it means for your participation. Now I went up to this guy privately, and I had a very difficult conversation where I said, "Look, mate, I I got to tell you, this is a big issue. I, I think I don't think you understand the gospel." And you see where you're leading your family. So I had this really hard conversation where he got angry. Uh, he walked off, stormed off. Um, and I went home feeling terrible, as anyone who has those conversations do. But it was one of the pieces that's you've been using his life to step him up. Ah, isn't that the nature of how we operate? So you just got to have that tension, aren't you? just got to live with the schizophrenic thing, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So with those ministers that are consistently not performing, 
Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, some some uh, moved out of ministry. So it only, well, I think it's only been three. Um, uh, no, I think all of them, two of them still are in ministry, just in a different context. Uh, the nature of our context and the performance requirements are quite different. And some people flourish, some people flourish with their wife in a in a parish setting uh, where they're the generalist and they're responding to some people flourish in that context in a way that in our context they just can't they can't survive um, and it, that fit it's a bit of a fit issue yeah, yeah. yeah cool. I'd like to let you on the uh, the Kent Hughes book answer from the book on the oh, okay. so that's on, just on the focusing now I wonder if in the way you present it I wonder if the uh, focusing on outputs and judging on outputs is unhealthy, uh, as opposed to caring about outputs. So it's interesting the two New Testament examples you see were caring about outputs, Jesus leaving over Jerusalem, Paul in 1 Corinthians, and so forth. But both in the in the context of saying, "Do not judge the success on the basis of outputs." Do you understand that? I do. I think I think I do. And and tied to that, I wonder if it's also very important to get the outputs right. Totally. So the output isn't necessarily people being converted. It's people being given every opportunity to hear the gospel plainly spoken into their circumstance so that they make a response. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Of rejection or acceptance. Yeah, yeah. Do you understand what I'm saying? I'm pretty sure I know what you're saying. The um, uh, focusing on outputs, caring about it. I I don't know how you can care about outputs without focusing on them. No, sorry. you use the word focusing, but focusing can be caring or it can be judging the success. I'd do both. On the basis. I'd, I'd want to contend that I'd want to contend that um, if we run a mission, we want an evangelistic activity where no one responded, I'd judge it and say it's not working or not working yet. I wouldn't do it again, or I'd rework it, or I'd. I've got to judge on the basis of outputs. Otherwise, there's four dimensions to leadership, and I have talked about this in other contexts. There's, you've got to learn to lead yourself, that is, manage your own life. You've got to learn to lead others. How do I help others grow? That's the discipleship work. I've got to learn to lead leaders. They're different skills, leading others and leading leaders. They're not the same thing, and I, I think you can be good at leading others but not good at leading leaders. They're very different skills. But then the fourth thing you've got to, I think in our ministries, we've got to grow in our ability to lead strategy. We are the resource managers. And like it or not, the reality is, you might want to think it's otherwise, the reality is our resources are limited. We've got limited resources. Where am I going to, where am I going to bend the resource, um, pull together a resource to apply to something? It's got to bear fruit. I think we have a lot of churches that are beating the air, running after 20 different things, none of which are particularly bearing any fruit. It's not creating momentum at all. And no one's got the guts to say, let's look at the outputs here. Let's judge these ministries according to how we're going. Now, there's a different kind of judgment, which is condemnatory. There's a personal condemnation that might come 
I don't want to step that far by any means. Um, but I do want to. I do want to judge our work by it. Yeah. Then, then what about the part I'm getting the outputs right? Because I'll give you an example. In our area of Sydney, uh, any man and his dog can start a church for Chinese people in the grow. Yeah. Uh, or Korean. Whereas and we ought to keep doing it, praise God. Amongst yeah. the Lebanese Muslims, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Like school, yeah. And you see one convert a year, yeah. And so, so the output there is that if you judge both of those on the same outputs, uh, you'll never do ministry to Muslims in the South. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you don't, you don't judge them by the same outputs, but you do, you do have an output focus. You care about outputs, and you will judge on outputs. Just according to the context, the situation, the circumstance. So you you weight your outputs and expectations accordingly. You do all of that. But nonetheless, I'd still be saying, I'd be doing this with the Muslim work. I'd be going, gee, the bloke across the road has got 50 converts. We've got none. Now, does that mean we're not loved to Christ and we're out, you know? You don't make those judgments. But I go, well, I've got to face some facts here. <laughs> Maybe I'm doing something he's not doing. Maybe he's doing something I'm... Let's go and check it out. What do you reckon? No, no, I'm, I'm agreeing with you partially, but concerned where it can push to... Oh, look, the problem is you've got an event, and I'm... Yeah, yeah, I get where it can go. But my concern, my, my contention is that out of fear for where it can go, we never go there. And we're... I'll give a quick little example. Um, when we started the church... Uh, everyone was afraid of me as the leader because of where I might take it. And so they wouldn't, they didn't want to give me any leadership. And, and I have to keep helping people realise that if you run church like that, you'll never have leadership and you'll never go anywhere. But I'll be okay because it won't go anywhere bad. It just won't go anywhere good. There's risks. Yeah. But I'm the burden, I've got to tell you, just to, again to tell you who I am, I'm the, you know the burden, the hand, two in the bush? I'm the two in the bushman. Um, if you said to me there was a possibility, if you let go of that one bird, you might get two, I'll always let go of the one bird. Yeah. So I'm a, I'm a risk taker. Yeah. Yeah, Harry, I'm just wondering what other kind of outputs there might be. So, I mean, obviously, conversion is key. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but for example, if, like that young man you mentioned who was all over the place and really, and because of your hard conversation, he stepped up. I mean, I don't know what happened to him, but. Say he, he ended up becoming a say growth group leader. I mean, is that a, is that would, would yeah. that be an output? Yeah, 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 totally. Because it's, it's you know significant maturity yeah. along the along the scale. Yeah, yeah. Someone who's you know never thought about sharing the gospel with anyone, but has recently brought a friend to church, seen her converted, even if that friend's not coming to our church. You know, would that be a absolutely a good measure of output? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I, I, your discussion about what the outputs we are use are is exactly the right discussion. And I'm not... You know, conversion is a simple one. Um, uh, maturity, uh, financial giving, attendance at church, these are all measures that are not conclusive. They're not... But, you know, I, one of the things we keep saying together is that, you know, we do... We, we have staff... We have a staff... Two staff conferences, senior staff, general staff. We report on the work. Everyone's got to do the commander where they stand up and say, here has this gone this 12 months. And we grill each other. And, um, and we've got a context where there's this incredible grace and support of each other. So it's, it really is quite wonderful. But um, they work hard to define the outputs they're pursuing in their areas, together in the team. And 
for the membership area, it's a series of different outputs than for the mission area. And when we fail to hit targets, no one says you're a failure. You know, we go through the, are there extenuating circumstances? Have we done the ministries poorly? What's going on here? Let's find out. Let's analyse. But, but, but it's, it's uh, come to Christ, deepen in Christ. They're the big things. And how do I measure deeper in Christ? It's a series of external measures, which I always take care to. There's much more going on. I don't judge people just for the fact they don't come to church regularly. There's all kinds of... Yeah, no doubt. I've got to think through that process, though. Yeah. I worry when someone doesn't give money. They say, oh, I'm struggling. You went on a ski trip. You know, they, they, oh. got to work through all that stuff together. The go back to the principle about change is a process. The kind of steps of change we're pursuing are massive, um, so they require significant resource input. I'll give you one example with. Um, <coughs> um, Oh, there's lots of... Uh, mission, Mission, very simply. I'll talk about maturity perhaps next session. M- mission. Um, we want our church to be seeing people converted. <laughs> we want to we see... 30, we've gone to 10%. We want to see 30,000 people converted on the Central Coast. Um, now, as you analyse that whole process, you find out, well, to get that to happen, I've got to get non-Christians in contact with Christians. I've got to get the gospel to bear in their lives so that they understand it. Um, how are we going to do that? Well, uh, I've got to work on conviction-driven mission stuff amongst my people. I've got to then get a context where they can get together in a way that communicates clearly. They're all massive steps. I, I was preaching every week. I was, I was trying to manage a new church with setting up the infrastructure, the governance structures, the finance... Uh, uh, managing problems, uh, you know, pastoral issues. I was trying to do all of that, and all I could give time, all I could do, it was like a computer kind of. You cycle through and you hit that one, hit it, you know that kind of thing. And and my problem was, I'd cycle through and jump. <laughs> Sometimes I'd hit it, and so it was just stop start until we got someone who could give resource and energy to it in a more um, fuller way. Now it didn't. Uh, we didn't put a full-time person into that role initially. But when we got someone who could actually give two days a week to it, we began to get further. Um, and, and he actually was able to... So this guy called Craig, who's in our church, still with us. He, he was able to begin to, to work on the convictions in a long-term investment. He was able to work on... Uh, a course. So we, we run a thing called Life. I kicked it off and ran it twice. That was all I could do. 
That was the end of me. Craig picked it up and kept developing it, but he was able to give it ongoing input. But then we found people respond at the end of that course, and we were losing some in them because we couldn't follow them up. So he had to invest in the 12-month follow-up course. Now, my point here is change the process. They're big steps. You need to invest resource to actually make each step of the process happen, otherwise it just won't happen. Ideally, you'd wish it would, it won't in reality. So staffing. Um, we, we keep looking through church, analysing, and in the early years, I had to think through the strategy, the resource. I want to build a ministry that's got momentum, that begins to actually have a growing number of people to invest in these areas. Where am I going to invest first? Where am I going to invest second? Those priority decisions were deeply important. Don't put on a women's worker as your second staff member. Don't put on a youth worker as your second staff member. Except in some extraordinary circumstances. <laughs> your growth might be driven by those things, and that's wise, but most of us are not. Don't put on a paid administrative staff person as your second staff. You know, it is... Because none of those things will build the resource base to get a pipeline of conviction-driven, maturing people into the work to spread the work, to leverage the work, to grow the work. You've got limited resource. You've got to think about how to utilise what you've got strategically. Um, now then, money. So if I'm going to get someone to give the attention mission needs to get that whole process happening, I've got to actually free them up to give more time to it, which means I have to pay them. Now we've... You, you do realise as... If, the, if you're heading a plant or a small church or any church, you're responsible for raising the finances. No one else is going to do it. If you don't do it, it won't get done. Um, and so you've got to learn how to raise money and lots of it. Um, we put on a couple of staff by me going to the top 10 earners in church, or top 15 earners, and saying, Here, look, if we could find 50 grand, we could put on this guy, and here's the gap that he would plug, and here's the difference he would make, and we'd pay back that 50 grand in two years' time. And so we put on two or three staff like that, because uh, I wasn't prepared to wait for general giving to reach that point. We just couldn't. Generally, generally, your growth follows resourcing. It doesn't lead it. Um, if you wait for the resources to come, you won't grow. You've got to lead it. Which means you've got to be the one to see ahead. And I'll talk about some analysis in the next session. Um, so we're in a building at the present that seats about 400, 450, I guess. And we're filling, we're 80% in three of our services. So we can't grow anymore in that facility. I, we saw that coming six months into having built it. You know, we knew, we knew it wasn't. But within six months we realised we've only got about 80 months left. And we realised if we didn't bring the need to the congregation then, back then, before it was obvious it was a need, when they realised it was a need, it would stop being a need. Because momentum, you know, um, and, but so I had to persuade people that this is a need that they can't see yet. <laughs> That's leading strategy is is part of our role. 